morning. Welcome to Crosspoint. We're glad you're here. I'm going to be completely honest up front this morning as we begin and let you know that I feel terrible, like as not good as I have felt in a long time. And I'm hoping that saying that out loud will allow the Lord to give me a supernatural ability to press on and to preach because I, I, we've never been in this situation before where the guy who needs to preach feels really, really bad this morning. So it hit me once I got here, and I was sitting there reading my notes, and all of a sudden it was kind of like, oh, oh gosh. And so I hope not to do uh, anything embarrassing in front of you guys with that sickliness, but I'm hoping that putting it out there will allow us to uh, maybe pray about that and then uh, hopefully move through this sermon and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me this morning because I really feel that bad. And, And if it gets really bad, Pastor Cardwell will come up and lead us in some uh, prayer, and, uh, and we will continue with the supper, um, but I'm hoping that's not the case. So um, as I pray this morning, please pray for me as well. Let's go to the Lord and humble ourselves. Lord, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Your ways are higher than our ways, and you are, um, you are with us now. We humble ourselves before you this morning, and Lord, I just ask for a supernatural ability to keep it together. I am just not feeling well, and this is a new thing that we've never experienced on a Sunday morning. It feels like a bit more uncharted territory, and so Lord, we, uh, we humble ourselves before you. I, I do ask that you would help me to have a clear mind and clear words and a, and a, a calmed uh, stomach, and um, Lord, we, we, just, we just put it out there pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we kicked off the new sermon series titled Elder-Led Congregationalism. And what we've been exploring, um, we're exploring God's design for his kingdom people on earth. Specifically, what we're doing is this. We're seeking to make sure that our view of authority and responsibility within the church is in accordance with what God has communicated to us through his word. So when it comes to responsibility When it comes to authority, we want to make sure that our view of what we're doing here in the church is lined up with God's word. And so we're studying something called elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. Last week we found four details that explain the who, the what, and the little bit of the how of elder-led congregationalism. The first is this. King Jesus is the head of the church. If we don't start there, we can end up in all kinds of terrible places that King Jesus is the head of the church. We're not the head of the church. Elders aren't the head of the church. Uh, Charter members aren't the head of the church. Jesus is. And from there, we will find good order if we look to him for it. And what we next found was King Jesus gives elders the authority and the responsibility to lead the church. And then he gives deacons the authority and the responsibility to serve the church. And that's not really new because since 2003... At Crosspoint, we've had elders and we've had deacons leading and serving, so that's not new to members of Crosspoint. But the new part that we considered was that God communicates a third office known as member. King Jesus gives the gathered congregation the authority and the responsibility to bind and loose regarding the what and the who of the gospel. What God reveals is a church that is led by elders who are actively equipping the church through the ministry of preaching and teaching the word, equipping them to rightly bind and loose or to think about binding and loosing what is that it's receiving or rejecting, agreeing or disagreeing when it comes to what the gospel is 
And when it comes to what the gospel is not, as well as who the gospel people are and who the gospel people are not, that is a responsibility that lies on your shoulders as a gathered congregation. And if, in fact, this is a church office, it has a significant impact on each of us as members of God's gathered church. What that means is this. If in proclaiming Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I'm given a job description that he's going to hold me accountable to, each of us sitting here this morning should care deeply about what is in that job description. For you cannot be finally responsible to do something that you don't have the authority to do, but if God has given you an office and he has given you responsibility and he has given you authority, it's no longer optional. What we see in this job description as we explore it this morning is not optional, but rather it's a responsibility that has really profound meaning. This week we're going to explore the responsibilities and the authorities of the gathered church by going all the way back to the beginning to see what was God's plan for mankind when he set mankind in place, when he spoke us into creation, as the word says, ex nihilo, from nothing. We're going to consider three different covenants, one before the fall and two after, that will reveal what we're going to consider is a covenantal trajectory. We see these covenants and they, they lead us to a new covenant that exists in Christ. But before we talk about that new covenant in Christ, we've got to look at these old covenants. And what we find as we look at them is along the way we pick up important details about our job description as priest kings. Write that in your notes, as priest kings. That's the title of today's sermon, Priest Kings Part 1. Turn with me to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. When God created human beings, he wasn't done. When God created human beings, he wasn't done. His plan wasn't to simply create us and then leave us to our own devices to see how things played out. He didn't say, I'm going to create this awesome thing, and we'll just see what happens. That wasn't how God planned. From before human beings were created, God had a very specific plan and design for us as those who were created in his image. And throughout scripture, that plan can be seen in covenants. The plan from God can be seen in covenants. God has chosen to relate to man covenantally. Let's become familiar with that word this morning. God has chosen to relate to man the way that we exist with God. He's our creator. We are his people. The way he's chosen to move with us is covenantally. One explanation says at its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Thus, human covenants, for example, marriage, fall under this general definition. So when you enter into a marriage, there's two sides and both agree to certain things, and that is the nature of the covenant. Our covenant exists as long as we uphold our sides. In divine covenants, it's a little bit different, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. These covenants, now don't tune out because covenants are really important. In divine covenants... God sovereignly establishes the relationship with his creatures. You might write that in your notes. What is this covenant? It's God divinely establishing his relationship with his creatures. The terms belong entirely to God. We do not sit down at the table and negotiate with God. Our God says, I'm your God, you're my people, and this is how it is in fact going to be. So let's take a look at God's first covenant with man. And this is the only covenant that exists before the fall, and then we'll look at those after the fall. Look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. Consider what God is doing. How does he want man to be? He says this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's plan from the beginning was to create man in his image. And in his image, he will give that man dominion over the earth. Now look at 2.5. 2.5 says this. We're going to read through verse 9 and then verse 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust, dust, from the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God plants this garden and God puts the man in the garden and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then look what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Underline work it and keep it in your Bibles. Those are two incredibly important phrases that help us to understand what it means to be a priest king. As a man, representative of every man and woman that would follow, Adam was created in God's image. He was given dominion over animals, and now he is placed by God in God's garden, this garden being the place of God's dwelling, where God dwells with his people. And what Adam is supposed to do, representative of every human being, this was the plan for every human, was work the garden and keep the garden, underline that. These are the beginnings of how we will understand God's design for mankind to be priest kings. Uh, question this morning. Have you ever been given squash or cucumbers by someone who has their own garden? Squa- raise of hands. Seriously, I need some interaction this morning. Hurting. Squash or cucumbers, maybe potentially tomatoes. Those seem to grow a lot as well. These people will show up to church or work or school or a random parking lot with a huge grocery sack full of usually squash and cucumbers, right? And they're begging for people to take this extra crop off of their hands. No charge, just take them. Our garden is overrun with too much squash and cucumbers. This is the result of these people having worked and kept their garden. If we're trying to understand this working and keeping of garden, that's the result of these people working and keeping their garden. And keeping the garden... They're guarding the garden from what is bad for their crop and giving the garden what is good for their crop. They're guarding their gardens as they work on their squash and cucumber gardens. They keep the bugs out and they keep the weeds out and then they make sure there's a good amount of sunlight and a good amount of water. And in keeping this garden, this working and keeping, and in keeping the garden, they keep what's bad out and what's good in. And when they do this, by God's design, this garden thing is God's design by just so y'all know, like you can't make anything grow. You can't force it. You can't will yourself upon it. You grow and you sprout squash. You can't do that. This is God's design and only he causes growth. He even reminds us of that in the church. But when we do this, by God's design, the garden grows. 
Rather than just keeping the garden, they then begin to have to work the garden, harvesting their produce and potentially enlarging the garden's boundaries because that's what you have to do in a healthy garden. It grows and you have to work it and keep it. The result of working and keeping is a healthy garden that is growing. Now, let's import ourselves back into the garden with Adam, Eve, and God. Look at verse 15 again. Now, in light of how that, the working and the keeping and the growing of the garden, now let's go back to verse 15 and read these three verses. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now we have laws. We have a plan. You work it, you keep it, and now we have rules. The garden is the place where God dwells with man. Man equipped with the image of God is given some authority, and then he's given a job description. And if we're looking for some hints on our job description as priest kings, we need to pay attention here. The authority is found in the dominion that comes from God. If, not, if it doesn't come from God, there is no dominion. But it comes from God. And upon being placed in the garden, the job description is this. Work. And keep the garden. And not only that, but God gives them the rules or you might say the law for his plan, which in this case is eat from any tree you want except one. And if you eat of that, you will surely die. This is the setup. This is how God has chosen to relate to humankind that he has made in his image. This is the first covenant that we see in our Bibles. Covenant. God is sovereignly establishing his relationship with his creatures. Or to say it another way, God is saying to Adam and Eve, this is the way that I will be your God and you will be my people. He gives Adam commands. And in this divine plan of God's, Adam, Adam, like his father, will create and subdue and he will rule as a king. And as he rules, he also works to keep the garden holy, which is this priestly role. So what we see with Adam right here in Genesis is Adam is a priest king. He keeps it holy. He keeps the bad out. He keeps the good in. And then he works and he reigns and he rules over it as a king, expanding the boundaries of this garden. These are little footprints and fingerprints that will help you to understand who we are through covenant as we sit here today as a church. He rules. He reigns. He's like his dad, his father. So in this working, the keeping of the garden, and in the reigning and the ruling, and the holding fast to what is good and keeping out what is bad, and in expanding the boundaries of the garden, Adam is a priest king. A priest king. And God installed Adam into this office. And Adam was representative of God's plan for all of humanity. At this point, you might be thinking, oh, I get it. I get it. Okay. There we go, Pastor. I see the I get it. Adam was a priest king. So since we're human beings like Adam, made in the image of God, we're supposed to be priest kings too. I get it. Nice, nice. It would be nice if we could stop there. The sermon could be shorter. I could go throw up. We would all feel better. But we can't. Because something terrible happened after Adam was installed into this office of priest king. He was given commands, but Adam didn't keep them. He was given commands and he didn't keep them. He sinned. He chose to defy his creator. He misused his authority and he failed in his responsibility. 
Adam abandoned his job description, and in doing so, he plunged all of humanity into eternal ruin and hopelessness, separated from God. So it's not quite that easy. As he's a priest king, we're a priest king. Well, he screwed the whole thing up, and now we've got a massive problem on our hands for all of humanity that may or may not exist from that point forward. I really want you to think with me for a second about this. This could have been the end of us, right? In this moment, just just think about this. We take so many things for granted, we assume things, but just think. This could have been the end of the story. You see, God doesn't need us. God exists in perfect unity with himself outside of time. And remember, time is a created thing that will one day melt back into eternity. So God creates time. And he creates the world and he creates human beings in his likeness with his image. These human beings by his design would bear his image unto all the world by working and keeping this garden where God dwells with his people. But they break the commands. They abandon the job description. They misuse their authority and they misuse their responsibility and they fail. And at this point, this thing known as human beings could have been finished. Really, at that point, God could have said, well, that did not work out. So my image being being born unto all the world through people who are created in my image by me, well, that didn't work out, and that could have been the end. No generations to follow, no offspring, no progeny, no more worked and kept gardens. That could have been the end for all of mankind. And we know that after sin entered the world, things did not get better. Keep turning to the right there in Genesis and look at Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Let's see how bad it got. In 6.5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that, every man, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me explain that again. Just as I read this, I want you to think about what it would be like if in this room right now this was the case. What if it was the case in this room that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in this room And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about how wicked this scenario is. This is is where mankind has gotten after they've been plunged into ruin from sin. It says in verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven for, look what God says. Listen to heartbreaking. He says, I am sorry. I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, how far humanity has fallen from the working and the keeping of the garden while keeping God's commands. Now when God looks into this earth that he has created and these people whom he has created, you can't even find a good intention there's, no, there's not even a spot where God was like, well, they meant well. There is no meaning well. There's no good intentions. He can't even find a good intention, much less holiness, much less actual holy living. Generations before, God spared Adam and Eve and covered them in the skins of a pure sacrifice, hints of what's to come. But from that point on, the earth became corrupted by sin. And you might be thinking that it could have all ended with Adam and Eve when they broke the commands, but how much more so in this moment where the earth is void of even a good intention with the thoughts of mankind's heart that are only evil continually. 
there are no priest kings here, are there? In this setting, there are no priest kings that are serving God according to the covenant, only a creator with a grieved heart. Look at that. It's hard for us to comprehend that, to wrap our heads around that. But our Lord in this moment says, wants us to know that he has a grieved heart. But then God does something unexpected, and he chooses to bestow favor on a guy named Noah. Noah was, was blameless, but he was not sinless. And when we see this favor, it's like, oh, there was, oh, there was one good one left. No, no, we're going to keep reading and see what happens. But we, we, there wasn't one good one left. God bestowed Noah upon Noah favor that he did not deserve. So the Adamic covenant, we see what happened there, and the earth became corrupt. That's the Adamic covenant. Number one is the Adamic covenant. Number two, we're going to look at this Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. So Noah and his family are preserved through the flood, and look at what God says to Noah after the flood in nine, chapter 9. One through three. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, see if this sounds familiar to you, this covenant language. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same words that he spoke to Adam and Eve, this covenantal language. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are Delivered, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. It sounds almost identical to Genesis. So God is continuing to move in covenant, continuing to fulfill his plan, even though Adam and the generations following failed. And look at what it says in verse 7. And you, I'm going to read through 17, so y'all stick in here. This is the, the longest section. He says, And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with, with you, as many as came out of the ark, and it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I bet that was some of the best news anyone's ever heard. Even on this ark, it's been miserable. Things failed from Adam, and they come in here, and man, they're able to go. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There are so many similarities to the covenant that God made with Noah. The Noahic covenant is very similar to the Adamic covenant, but it is changed to account for the sad reality of sin. Again, God is sovereignly establishing his relationship with his creatures through covenant. And at this point, we might be thinking, yes, redemption. There's a hero in the wings. Another blessed by God, given authority and responsibility and a job description installed into the office of priest king. He is being reinstalled into that office which Adam lost. But if we keep reading, we see a sad and familiar story. Look at 9.18. Just go ahead and skip ahead. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay, this looks familiar. Adam had a garden. Noah has a vineyard, and this is looking awesome. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Well, that didn't last very long, did it? That's quite the turn of events when we were so hopeful of this potentially redemptive opportunity. 
Noah, with this massive opportunity before him, having been spared as the only patriarch to live through a worldwide flood, this is the only guy who lived through the worldwide flood. God reestablishes him in the office of priest king, and he fails. He receives a covenantal job description, and he decides to show up for work drunk. What a mess, right? Human beings are a mess. Rather than planting a garden and sharing his squash and cucumbers, he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk on the wine, and then he passes out naked in his tent. This is like Jerry Springer kind of stuff, like redneck ridiculousness. A low point in human history for sure. So in the Adamic and Noahic covenants, we don't see things playing out the way we may have hoped when we saw God establishing his way with his people. So let's look now at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Look with me at verses 1 through 8. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram at this time, sorry. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. This is covenant language. God is saying, here's how I'm going to move with you, Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in in you, listen to this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And listen to what happens in these next few verses as Abraham begins to move according to what God has said. So Abram went... As the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had. And look at what they do. That they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. So there's people being added to Abraham's tribe. And you see Abraham is a sort of kingly figure. And they set out to, the, to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the, came to the land of Canaan... Abram passed through the land at the place at Shechem's, uh, Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. We see this mediating where the Lord appears and then Abram does something with the people. He appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So this plan to bless all of humanity through a man is now landing on Abraham. To your offspring, I will give all this land. So look what Abram does. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord again and called upon the name of the Lord. Now look over at 22.18 and let's see what happens. God says, I will make kings come from you in 17. And then he says the same thing to Sarah. And then over in 22.18, let's see how this whole thing shakes out. Did Abraham do okay? Did he do a little better than the guys before? Let, let's see about these promises that God is giving instead of commands. And then it says in verse 18 and 22, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And in your offspring, you king, you priest, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. It's important for us to notice three things about Abraham in these verses. Remember, we're trying to pick up some details of our job descriptions. If we are priest kings, if something has been redeemed. And here, as Abraham is installed to this office that Adam was installed to, and that Noah was installed to, as he's installed to this office, it's important for us to understand how he is essentially inheriting Adam's priestly and kingly work. And we see it in three ways. Here's the three ways. First, 
Abraham was deputized by God as a mediating and representing king, representative king on God's behalf. God talks to Abraham, and Abraham talks to the people. God reveals something to Abraham. Abraham reveals it to the people. They build an altar, and the people worship God. It is a mediating role, and it's also a kingly role because he is over these people. So Abraham was deputized by God as a mediating and representative king on God's behalf. That's number one. He's deputized by God as king and mediator. And then it, it, it's a, he's a man who cultivated and raised up a people. He cultivated and he raised up a people. And he did that by being consecrated to the ways of God. By being consecrated to the ways of God. How, how did Abraham fulfill this priest-king role? God puts him in it. He deputizes him. He makes him an ambassador. He says, you can speak on my behalf to these people. He gives him that role, that authority, that responsibility. And through that, he exercises and he cultivates and raises up a people, a people, a gathered people, you might say, like a congregation. And they do that by doing what God says. Unlike Adam, unlike Noah, God says, I will fulfill this since you cannot fulfill it on your own. By being consecrated to the ways of God. Lehman in his book states, It appears that God would fulfill his kingly and priestly purposes for humanity through Abraham. First, by producing a people, and second, by establishing them as a consecrated and a modeling citizenry who demonstrated God's righteousness and God's justice. He's saying, this people will bless the the earth. Generations will be changed because these image bearers will bear the image of my justice. They will represent me rightly. They will bear the image of my righteousness. What God commands of all people with Adam, now through Abraham, he will fulfill through his special people what he had originally intended. God's redeemed line, this redeemed line through Abraham, it's, so think of it as a funnel. With Adam, it includes all of humanity. All of humanity gets wiped out in the flood with the exception of Noah, but then it gets bad again. And so God comes in, and it's a specific line through Abraham that all of creation will be blessed as God fulfills his purposes. So here's our fitting question as we turn the corner this morning. As we're trying to figure out our current job description, we have to ask this question. Do God's promises to Abraham, this promise to bless the entire earth through a consecrated people who are, who are doing what they're supposed to be doing through this sort of priest-king responsibility that we see with Abraham, is God still doing that today and are those promises still enforced today? Or to say it another way, Is God still cultivating a people who are consecrated to his ways through whom the entire world will be blessed? Are we sitting here as that people? Are we sitting here this morning as a people consecrated to the ways of God through which, through whom the whole world will be blessed? And the answer is found in Galatians 3. Go ahead and turn there with me. Most of our times in Genesis this morning, we're going to go ahead and turn over to Galatians 3. Verses 26 through 29. Kai Martin preached on this a few weeks ago, and it's so wonderful uh, to be going back to it because of how fitting it is for our, for our situation here, trying to figure out where we are as potentially children of Abraham. In verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So hear that. In Christ Jesus, if you're sitting here and you're in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That baptism is how you enter into the people of God in this role that you have. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And look what it says in verse 29. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God gave promises to Abraham and God fulfilled those promises. And in Christ, you are Abraham's children. You're the offspring that was blessed through generations through what God was doing with this people. So the answer to our question is that God's promises are for anyone who's a child of Abraham in Christ. In Christ, these promises find their fulfillment. You see, through Christ, just think of it backwards. Through Christ, we're connected back to Abraham, and through Abraham, we see this connection kind of back to Adam. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the better Adam. Please hear that this morning. Write it in your notes. As we're trying to figure out this priest-king thing, Jesus Christ is the better Adam, the new Adam, the Adam that Adam could never be, the fulfillment of every promise that ever came through any prophecy, that is our Lord Jesus, and in him things change for us dramatically. Look over at 1 Corinthians 15. This will be the last place I have you turn. 1 Corinthians 15. What do we mean that Christ is a better Adam? Look at 1521. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So death entered when sin entered, and that death needed to be conquered, and it was conquered by another man. It says in 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's a better Adam, and it says, listen to this. How does this work? Each of each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying what? Jesus will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. And how does he do that? He's doing that via his power through his people. Every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he is put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we know in 2 Timothy that God calls us to reign and to rule with him. So how do we bring this together? King Jesus has redeemed the office of priest-king. King Jesus has redeemed the office of priest-king. How did he do that? He's done that by living the perfect life, by conquering death, by mediating for us, by interceding for us, by making clear to us what is holy and what is not holy, and by currently calling us to reign with him until all of his enemies, every power, every authority has been put under his feet. He is now seated as the king of kings. So our Lord is the perfect king that Adam could never be. And then consider what it says in Hebrews about this priestly role. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the people since he did this when? Once for all, when he offered up himself. Hebrews says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood, means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It goes on to say, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Our Lord is a perfect priest and a perfect king. 
Christ fulfilled and conquered and exercised dominion and authority over everything that every previous priest and king could not. He's a perfect priest king once for all. And what does that produce? Don't turn there, but 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. What does that produce when Jesus does that? But you, gathered congregation, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, Like, we need to get a little bit excited about this this morning. You, gathered congregation, King Jesus has fulfilled the kingly and priestly rule. And what does he do? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That what? You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. We do that through the binding and loosing. We do that through the exercising of the keys of the kingdom. You proclaim his greatness. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what does it mean if you've received mercy? Church, gathered people, in Christ, you have been restored to the office that Adam lost. In Christ, you have been restored to the office that Adam lost. Why? Well, as a holy nation, you are a royal priesthood or a kingly priesthood in Christ you are priest kings church this is remarkable when we talk about being heirs and we talk about what it means to reign and rule and we talk about even knowing that in your marriage it says show honor to one another knowing you're co-heirs with Christ this means that as a holy nation you are a royal priesthood and in Christ you sit here this morning as priest kings with authority and with responsibility and with accountability. Your job description as a gathered congregation is to work and to keep this garden known as the church, which is the dwelling place of God. And as you do this kingdom that you have been brought into by the working and the keeping of those generations before us, this kingdom will expand its boundaries, and by God's design, the church continues to grow on earth. The kingdom of God continues to move forward in spite of persecution, in spite of oppression, in spite of whatever else might trip it up. The kingdom of God moves forward through the local church. You work and you keep this garden, church. The working and keeping is the same as binding and loosing. You as a gathered church are given the authority by King Jesus to proclaim that which is holy And defend against that which is not. You each have the Holy Spirit and are enabled to do that work. And in doing so, you have the authority to say who is a part of this gospel people and who is not. How do you do that? You do that based upon a true profession of faith and a life that reflects that profession. It is a sweet and sobering reality for us. This is God's design for his glory to continue to spread through his image bearers to all of the world. It is no small thing. Church, please hear this. It is no small thing to be a member of a local church. For when you gather, you do so as a chosen race of priest kings. Next week, we'll continue to unpack more of what that means. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your answered prayers this morning, Lord. I'm, as we Um, distribute the elements. I pray that you would help us to see this beautiful new covenant in Christ and that you would help us to see our role as priest kings. And I pray that we would celebrate what we have in Christ and we would take seriously the call that you've placed upon us. We humble ourselves before you and I pray that this congregation as we distribute these elements that we would um, 
that we would examine ourselves and consider um, if we are walking and willing to walk according to your design. You are great and greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.